Today is Wednesday, October the 4th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the mind of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Microsoft will stop activating Windows 10 and 11 with Windows 7 and 8 keys. Microsoft quietly announced earlier this month that users will no longer be able to install and activate Windows 10 or Windows 11 with old Windows 7 and Windows 8 product keys. At least for now, though it seems like this change will only apply to future Windows versions. Presently, you're able to activate a fresh Windows 11 Pro 22H2 install with a Windows 8 Pro product key, but you cannot activate a newer Insider preview build of Windows, suggesting that the change will mostly affect new Windows versions. When Windows 10 originally launched in 2015, it did so as a free upgrade to all users of Windows 7 and Windows 8. The vast majority of the Windows user base at that time, Microsoft wanted to encourage developers to use its new technologies by giving them the largest possible installed base of people on the newest version of Windows. Not only would people running Windows 7 and Windows 8 be offered the option to upgrade to Windows 10, but product keys from those versions of Windows would activate the analogous editions of Windows 10. Formerly, that free upgrade offer ended in July of 2016, and Windows 7 and 8 PCs no longer saw notifications about the offer. But users quickly noticed that it was still possible to upgrade these old Windows installs using downloaded ISOs or USB sticks, and it was still possible to use old Windows product keys to activate fresh installs. That loophole has persisted to the present day. Microsoft says Windows 10 users can still upgrade to Windows 11 for free, at least if their Windows 10 PCs meet Microsoft's relatively stringent system requirements for Windows 11. Microsoft stopped selling new copies of Windows 10 back in January, and most versions of the operating system will stop getting security updates in October 2025. 
Even after Microsoft stops accepting Windows 7 and 8 product keys, you should be fine if you're already activated an older install. Windows creates and stores a digital fingerprint of your system at activation so you can continue to install and activate the same edition of Windows on the same PC repeatedly without re-entering the product key. But if you have a cache of old product keys around for activating new systems, eh, they may stop working sometime soon. The Raspberry Pi 5 is finally here. Four years since the launch of the Raspberry Pi 4, the Raspberry Pi 5 has arrived with a performance boost and in-house silicon that adds support for PCIe 2.0. Despite doubts that the Raspberry Pi 5 would launch this year, the latest version of the microcomputer has arrived with some notable upgrades at a $60 starting price. But only is it supposed to perform better than its predecessor, but it's also the first Raspberry Pi to come with in-house silicon. Powering the brain of the Raspberry Pi 5 is a 64-bit quad-core ARM Cortex A76 processor that runs at 2.4 GHz, allowing for two to three times the performance boost when compared to the four-year-old Raspberry Pi 4. That's a huge boost. The device also comes with the 800 MHz Video Core 7 graphics chip that the Raspberry Pi Foundation says offers a substantial uplift in graphic performance. It boots up pretty quickly while also loading web pages fast when compared to the older Raspberry Pi 3 Model B+. It does get pretty hot, but luckily Raspberry Pi has available an active cooling component that could mount directly on the board. Additionally, the Raspberry Pi 5 features a component made by the Raspberry Pi Foundation for the first time, the Southbridge, also known as part of the chipset that helps the device communicate with peripherals. With the Raspberry Pi 1 Southbridge, the Raspberry Pi Foundation says the microcomputer delivers a step change in peripheral performance and functionality, enabling faster transfer speeds to external UAS drives and other peripherals. It also opens up two four-lane 1.5 gigabits per second MIPI transceivers that let you connect up to two cameras or displays. There's also a new single-lane PCI Express 2.0 interface for the first time, offering support for high bandwidth peripherals. However, the Raspberry Pi Foundation notes that you still need a separate adapter such as a M.2 hardware attach on top for you to take advantage of it. In terms of ports, you can expect dual 4K P60 HDMI display outputs with support for HDR, a micro SD slot, two USB 3.0 ports, two USB 2.0 ports, gigabit ethernet, and a five volt DC power connection via USB-C. Some other nice-to-have include support for Bluetooth 5.0 and Bluetooth Low Energy, that's LE, and peak SD card performance that's doubled with the SDR104 high-speed mode. Together, all these upgrades make the Raspberry Pi 5 even more versatile. Whether you're using it as an ultra-budget desktop PC, a media server, or even a do-it-yourself security system. The Raspberry Pi 5 
will come with a couple of different RAM options at launch, costing $60 for the 4GB version and for $20 more at $80 for the 8GB version. That makes it slightly more expensive than the Raspberry Pi 4, which is priced at $55 for 4GB of RAM and $75 for the 8GB of RAM. The Raspberry Pi 5 will be available to purchase before the end of October. iPhone 15 Pro overheating problems caused by design compromise. Since the iPhone 15 Pro launch, there have been somewhat widespread reports of overheating problems. In a new post by analyst, Ming-Chi Kuo said that these problems aren't because of the 3 nanometers A17 Pro chip, but rather compromises made in the thermo system. The A17 Pro chip inside the iPhone 15 Pro is Apple and Taiwan Semiconductor's manufacturing company's first 3 nanometer processor. This had led to speculation that the new 3 nanometer technology is to blame for overheating problems. But what Coe said, however, is that the problems are because of changes Apple made to accommodate the switch to titanium and make the iPhone 15 Pro models lighter than their predecessors. Coe's survey indicates that the iPhone 15 Pro series overheating issues are unrelated to Taiwan Semiconductor's advanced 3 nanometers node. The primary cause is more likely the compromises made in the thermosystem design to achieve a lighter weight, such as the reduced heat dissipation area and the use of a titanium frame which negatively impacts thermal efficiency. Cole predicts that Apple will be able to address these problems through software updates. That being said, Apple may struggle to make too many improvements without also compromising chip performance. It is expected that Apple address this through software updates, but improvements may be limited unless Apple lowers processor performance. If Apple does not properly address this issue, it could negatively impact shipments over the product life cycle of the iPhone 15 Pro series. For now, the recommendation is wait until the fix is done before you purchase iPhone 15 Pro. The Federal Trade Commission sues Amazon for operating illegal monopoly. The agency is seeking a permanent injunction to pry loose Amazon's monopolistic control to restore competition. The Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan, is finally entering the ring with Amazon, her oldest antitrust nemesis. The agency, along with 17 other state attorney generals, is officially suing Jez Bezos' e-commerce baby for growing and metastasizing into a trillion-dollar anti-competitive monopoly, allegedly at the expense of consumers and sellers. The FTC and the Attorney Generals filed a historic lawsuit which accuses the e-commerce giant of using interlocking anti-competitive and unfair strategies to maintain an illegal monopoly. The landmark 172-page suit filed in Western Washington District Court claims Amazon leveraged its monopoly power to simultaneously raise prices for consumers and crush would-be competitors. 
The complaint builds off a years-long investigation into Amazon's business practices and marks one of the most significant legal challenges to the company since its founding 30 years ago. We're bringing this case because Amazon's illegal conduct has stifled competition across a huge swath of the online economy. FTC Bureau of Competition and Deputy Director John Newman said in a statement that Amazon is a monopolistic that uses its power to hike prices on American shoppers and charge sky-high fees on hundreds of thousands of online sellers. The complaint focuses on alleged anti-competitive practices in two distinct areas, the market that serves online consumers and the market for online marketplace service for sellers. Both consumers and sellers are being harmed, the suit alleges, all for the benefit of Amazon. Attorney generals from New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, and Michigan were among those who signed onto the complaint. On the seller side, the complaint claims Amazon engages in a number of anti-competitive practices, such as anti-discounting measures that deter sellers from offering lower products on non-Amazon markets, and pressuring sellers to use Amazon's fulfillment service in order to obtain prime eligibility for its products. The suit claims these tactics have raised costs for sellers and limited competitors' ability to fairly compete with a giant. Amazon made up 39.5% of the U.S. e-commerce market last year, according to Insider Intelligence. In a competitive world, Amazon's decision to raise prices and degrade services would create an opening for rivals and potential rivals to attract business gain momentum, and grow. The complaint reads, but Amazon has engaged in an unlawful, monopolistic strategy to close off that possibility. Specifically, the complaint claims Amazon uses a sophisticated surveillance network of web crawlers to monitor the web for signs of products at lower prices than they are listed on Amazon. Sellers trying to steer clear of Amazon's wrath, the complaint claims will either inflate product prices on other sites to ensure they don't dip below the listed price on Amazon or simply avoid offering products on other platforms altogether. Those inflated seller prices, the FTC claims, end up becoming a price floor everywhere else. So tactics used to allegedly intimidate Amazon sellers actually could lead to increased prices for consumers, not just on Amazon, across the web. The complaint goes on to describe ways to which Amazon's $140 annual Prime subscription, first introduced in 2005, can also incentivize consumers to continue shopping on Amazon, even when they could potentially find better deals elsewhere. A former Amazon employee quoted in a complaint made that point explicitly. Prime was really about changing people's mentality so they wouldn't shop anywhere else, the former employee said. Consumers are also suffering from Amazon's extraction of enormous monopoly rents, the suit alleges, even if that extraction isn't immediately obvious to Amazon's customers. The FTC claims 
Amazon's monopolistic practices have degraded its consumer experience by filling organic search results with annoying platform-degrading advertisements. Worse, the suit claims Amazon biases its search results to favor its own in-house Amazon-branded items over better third-party options. Sellers pay, the complaint says, regarding product advertisements. Shoppers get lower-quality search results for higher-priced products. Only Amazon wins. Amazon, needless to say, denies the FTC characterization of its business as a ravenous monopoly. Instead, the company fired back a public statement accusing the FTC of having radically departed from its mission of protecting consumers. The practices the FTC is challenging have helped to spur competition and innovation across the retail industry and have produced greater selection, lower prices, and faster delivery speeds for Amazon customers and greater opportunity for the many businesses that sell in Amazon store. Amazon Global Public Policy and General Counsel Senior Vice President David Zaposky said. If the FTC gets its way, the result would be fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for consumers, and reduced options for small businesses, the opposite of what antitrust laws is designed to do. Amazon did not immediately respond for requests to comment. The FTC and its state attorney generals are calling on courts to issue a permanent injunction that places limits on the company's perceived anti-competitive conduct and pry loose Amazon's monopolistic control to restore competition. This case represents the biggest test to date for the administration's openly aggressive antitrust enforcers. It will also likely hold particularly special meaning for Chair Khan, who made a name for herself in 2017 with the Yale Law Journal article titled Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. The observations in that article prove, well, prescient. Amazon is now exploiting its monopoly power to enrich itself while raising prices and degrading service for the tens of millions of American families who shop on its platform and the hundreds of thousands of businesses that rely on Amazon to reach them, Khan said in a statement. The lawsuit seeks to hold Amazon to account for these monopolistic practices and restore the lost promise of free and fair competition. Cornell University unveils new AI guidelines. The proper use of artificial intelligence in an academic setting continues to be a contentious topic among students and faculty. The university's official stance on AI was outlined in an email sent to the student body on September the 27th, which provided a series of official guidelines on the use of generative AI on projects. These guidelines come after the university's administration and faculty voiced concerns over the use of AI following the controversy generated by large language model ChatGPT's November 2022's release. The email claims to provide the opportunity to explore the advancements in technology that artificial intelligence has to offer, while also limiting its influence on curriculum. 
Cornell preliminary guidelines seek to balance exciting new possibilities offered by these tools with awareness of their limitations and the need for rigorous attention to accuracy, intellectual property, security, privacy, and ethical issues, Cornell's vice president and chief global information officer said in the email. The email said Cornell has developed the new guidelines to comply with already existing university policies and range from guidance on accountability, confidentiality, and privacy, education, and approach to teaching and research. New policies for accountability when using AI tools require users to be held accountable for erroneous information generated by AI that could be published without checking with an email asserting AI-generated content can be misleading, outdated, or false. Users are encouraged to verify information for errors and biases in addition to checking for copyright infringement and incidents. The guidelines also prohibit entering university information that may be confidential, proprietary, subject to federal or state regulations, or otherwise considered sensitive or restricted into public generative AI tools. These guidelines are cited as consistent with the university's privacy statement. Any information you provide to public generative AI tools is considered public and may be stored and used by anyone else, the email read. Education guidelines are described as flexible and at an instructor's discretion to prohibit, to allow with attribution, or to encourage generative AI use. The guidelines also offer additional resources to students from the CU, or that's the Cornell University Committee Report on Generative Artificial Intelligence for Education and Pedagogy, and for those from the Center for Teaching Innovation. The committee report released in July of 2023 provides recommendations for university policy regarding generative AI use in the classroom, including assistance for faculty to adapt new technology accommodations for new assignments. The report also recommends that instructors guide students to learn the value and limitations of generative AI since they are likely to encounter it in their future careers. Consequently, instructors now have the duty to instruct and guide students on ethical and productive use of generative AI tools that will become increasingly common in their post-Cornell careers, the report said. The email guidelines also announced plans from the university to offer or recommend a set of generative AI tools by the end of 2023. The email claimed that the administration is evaluating tools that meet the needs of students, faculty, staff, and researchers while providing sufficient risk, security, and privacy protections. Additionally, uses for generative AI must comply with the guidelines from forthcoming reports from the University Committees for Research and Administration. The reports are set to publish by the end of 2023, according to the email. This is a case of where a university has accepted responsibility of providing initial guidelines for use of AI in a university setting. Last week, I was talking about ageism at tech companies in the United States. 
Well, there is ageism at tech companies in China, and it is running rampant, forcing people who elsewhere would be entering the prime of their careers out of the industry. The 30-plus middle-age crisis, three-quarters of tech workers in China are younger than 30, and recruiters are reinforcing this. Some are instructed to cut off applicants at age 35. Why? As one recruiter said, the perception is that most people in their 30s are married and have to take care of their family. They're not able to focus on the high-intensity work. Younger workers also cost companies less. The paradox, as Bloomberg News points out, most of China's landmark tech companies were started by people over 30. But possibly because of ageist policies, that's changing more and more rising tech companies are led by founders in their 20s. Tech ageism in China is a serious problem that affects many workers in the tech industry. According to some reports, some recruiters are instructed to cut off applicants at age 35, and the government's annual recruitment of civil servants only consider applicants under the age of 35. This practice is especially prevalent in the tech sector, where employers often view younger workers as more productive, innovative, and able to work longer hours than their older counterparts. However, these perceptions are not supported by empirical evidence. In fact, individual labor productivity typically reaches its peak mid-age as a person gains experience. Age is also not a significant factor in explaining innovation. Other factors such as education play a more crucial role. Working longer hours does not necessarily result in better performance and can even increase health insurance costs for employers. Age discrimination in China's workforce is a relatively recent phenomenon as a loosening of state control over the market in the past decades have given employees more freedom to discriminate against older workers. In a competitive economic environment, employers may also prefer younger workers because they are cheaper to hire. The Chinese government is aware of the challenges posed by its aging population and is moving forward with its plan to gradually raise the legal retirement age. However, without addressing the issue of age-based discrimination in the workplace, raising the retirement age alone may have a limited impact on retaining older workers. Ageism is not only unfair and unethical, but also detrimental to China's economic growth and social stability. It deprives older workers of their dignity and livelihood and wastes their valuable skills and experience. It also reduces the diversity and creativity of the tech sector and hampers its ability to innovate and adapt to changing market demands. China needs to take measures to combat age discrimination in the workplace, such as enforcing anti-discrimination laws, raising public awareness, and providing training and education opportunities for older workers, and promoting a culture of respect and inclusion for ages. So ageism that's practiced in the United States, let me change that, ageism as it exists in the United States is the same issue that China has with ageism, but it's practiced at a younger age than what is practiced in the United States. 
presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time for us to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, and a lot of the things that go on, maybe behind the scenes. Last week, we talked about things that were in front of the scenes, the, the things that on film, the actual movie of things that you deal with in regards to IT policies. Now the behind the scenes policies for this week. And these behind the scenes policies, you may have heard indication of these, you may have seen some of these in action, but these policies are more for IT, for the business, for making sure that everything is secure all the way along. So one of the first things that always comes to mind for IT policies is the business continuity program and the disaster recovery program. And sometimes we call these policies and plans and, and so forth. It doesn't matter. They're slightly different and they, they both have to do with very similar things. A disaster recovery policy typically focuses in on something that is just the recovery of the IT assets. The server falls apart and stuff like that. Business continuity a hurricane hits or a tornado or whatever, and you you have to rebuild the entire company. Uh, so they're slightly different, but they're both very, very similar and usually tied into each other because those are very common items and they're very much related to each other. For instance, yes, you could have a server outage and multiple servers go out and you may have to rely on that business continuity policy. Vice versa, you have a you know massive problem at the plant and you have to recover that plant, but you also have to recover all of the data so you can do the billings and you can keep everything, everybody paid and so forth and so on. So they're very interrelated. They are the procedures that maintain all of these critical operations at all points in time when everything goes wrong. Now, there's also a data handling policy that varies from company to company. One of the companies I worked for years ago, we had a number of different data handling policies in regards to ensuring that government-controlled items were heavily controlled within our environment. We needed to make sure that foreign governments didn't get a hold of how to make certain parts for airplanes and things like that. This kind of data handling policy is all about how your data is collected, how you bring in the data into the systems, how you store these bits and pieces of data all around the network, and also how people can access and share this information. For instance, some people in the finance department may be able to share all kinds of different financial information, but let's say they have HR information uh, off in one spot. Well, not everybody should have access to the HR information. So you have to kind of think about how this all folds into each other. It's all about those security considerations, those privacy considerations. It's all about making sure that we know what data is where and who has access to that. There are also IT security policies, very similar 
to those data handling policies. And, and part of that data handling policy may dictate out various access controls and encryption. However, the IT security policy may add on to that and may be very related to it, but it may handle uh, some of that incident response to to protect the IT systems, but it may set up some security measures. It may talk about, okay, we have this antivirus. We have uh, this entire setup in regards to making sure that the backups are encrypted. Uh, all of these different layers that go into protecting the data. Now, they may not or they may be related back to the disaster recovery plans and the business continuity plans. And they may be related to those data handling policies, but they're, they're all related and interrelated, but we still set them kind of a little bit different in, in different spots throughout. Then we have, uh, I mentioned incident, and incident is different than disaster. An incident is we have maybe a security incident, or we may, we may have an incident where uh, a portion of files have been deleted. We just need to recover those files. We need to put them back out on the network. It may be a matter of, you know, somebody had access that they shouldn't. Okay, how do we, you know, just document this and make sure that we know that it was corrected? It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the company. It's not even the end of the server, but it's something that we have to look at, and we have to make sure that we have these plans in place. One last policy, and this is something that may impact you or it may not, and that is the software licensing policy. And for all of these different pieces of software that you have installed on your system, we need to make sure that they're licensed. And we need to make sure that they're licensed across all of the desktops throughout the company or all of the servers, and we need to make sure that we are in compliance with these so it makes sure that we're not utilizing software illegally without a license. And we need to make sure that we're tracking all of this information. So these are some of the layers that go into thinking about your computers at the office. It's not just something simple like, eh, we just set up a bunch of computers and they work. Oh, yeah, great. No, we have to think about this as IT people. And we do this on a regular basis. We go through and we set up each of the policies. And sometimes many more policies and different policy items throughout our companies that we're working at just to make sure that the company will stay solid and strong and will be professional. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The new Microsoft Windows backup app on Windows 11 and 10. Microsoft has introduced a new Windows backup app for Windows 11 and 10 users. The app, which is currently available only for Windows insiders, aims to simplify the backup process by allowing users to securely store their data in the cloud. The Windows backup app is recently launched utility designed to facilitate seamless data backup and restoration for Windows 11 and Windows 10 users. The application enables users to protect their critical information by securely storing it in the cloud. Microsoft has seamlessly integrated this app into the latest build. On Windows 11, you need to install at least Windows 11 Insider Preview Build 23466. 
Whereas on Windows 10, you need to be at least on Windows 10 KB5029331 version. The Windows Backup app does have certain limitations that users should be aware of. Limited control over app and setting selection. In comparison to some third-party backup solutions, this app is a full backup, which apps and settings are included. Users are unable to individually select apps or settings for backup. Restore process lacks specific folder selection. While users can toggle specific folders for backup, this option is notably absent during the restore process, as it is essentially a full restore process. The app excludes desktop apps available on the Microsoft Store and Android apps installed on your computer from the backup process. This exclusion requires users who rely on specific work-related Microsoft Store apps would need to be set up anew. The Windows Backup app solely caters to personal Microsoft accounts and is incompatible with work or school accounts. This limitation restricts its applicability in professional environments. While it may not be a comprehensive solution for all backup needs, the Windows Backup is a step towards ensuring the security and accessibility of valuable data for users across the Windows ecosystem. It features, offer, convenience, and essential backup options, but it comes with limitations. As this is an early version of the app, it is hopeful that Microsoft will continue to refine and enhance its functionalities based on user feedback. People ask me, why such a simple backup? Well, Microsoft, in their survey, found that only 15% of people really back up, and just minimally giving them a backup of this sort is at least a good first step. Google says Topics warning is anti-innovative fear-mongering. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, that's the EFF, has urged users to switch off several privacy sandbox settings in Google Chrome to mask their online habits or to consider switching to Mozilla Firefox or Apple Safari. Chrome's privacy sandbox is neither private, preventing one from being observed, nor sandbox, an environment in which code can be executed in isolation. Rather, it's a suite of advertising, analytics, anti-spam, and anti-tracking technologies. The goal for some of these is to replace third-party cookies. Third-party cookies, because they harm privacy by permitting people to be tracked online, are scheduled to be phased out next year in Chrome. But the online advertising industry isn't entirely sold on Google's replacement technology, and it may be that antitrust cases or other regulatory pressures will lead websites away from privacy sandbox and toward industry-backed ad tech like IAB's seller-defined audiences. Google says its privacy sandbox has five major goals, fighting spam and fraud on the web, showing relevant ads and content, measuring digital ads, strengthening cross-site privacy boundaries, and limiting covert tracking. And this is all done by Google for, quote-unquote, your benefit. The proposal that most troubles the EFF in this instance is topics. 
an API for delivering ads based on interests inferred from the web histories of Chrome users. Topics is a response to pushback against Google's proposed Federated Learning of Cohorts, FLOC, which we call a terrible idea because it gave Google even more control over advertising in its browser while not truly protecting user privacy. While there have been some changes to how this works since 2019, Topics is still tracking your internet use for Google's behavioral advertising. Basically, Topics, which became generally available in early September, allows websites to query visitors' Chrome browsers or any other compliant browser. Websites supporting Topics get up to three numbers representing a subset of the visitors' top five interests, some of which may be random if the user has insufficient browsing history. For example, a web browser querying the Topics API during a visit by someone who had visited dog-oriented websites might receive the number 268, which corresponds to the interest category of pets and animals, pets and dogs. And knowing that the publisher's ad tech might load the visited page with a dog-related ad. So with Topics, websites can ask browsers directly what someone is interested in based on their web browsing history and serve up ads and perhaps other content based on that. Presently, Topics is available in Google's Chrome browser. Microsoft hasn't committed, but is testing some privacy sandbox technologies in its Edge browser, which uses Chrome Chromium Engine. Mozilla and Apple have rejected Topics in Firefox and Safari, respectively, due to privacy concerns. And earlier this year, the Technical Architectural Group, that's a TAG, of the World Wide Web Consortium, W3C, the web's technical body, panned topics for being opaque and diminishing user control. Google characterizes topics as an improvement over the not-very-private status quo in which advertising and analytics firms can follow people across websites. With topics, the specific sites you're visited are no longer shared across the web, like you might have been with third-party cookies. The cloud giant says, without mentioning, that Google doesn't really need third-party cookies because it already knows a lot about people's web activities from those who use Chrome while signed into their Google account. The EFF argues that Google shouldn't be using the term privacy at all. That word does not mean what you think it means. Google referring to any of this as privacy is deceiving, even if it's better than third-party cookies. The privacy sandbox is still tracking. It's just done by one company instead of dozens. Instead of waffling between different tracking methods, even with mild improvements, we should work towards a world without behavioral ads. It is explained for those who won't give up Chrome that there's a way to opt out of topics of ad retargeting and of giving advertisers storage space in your browser for ad performance data. The EFF also makes Privacy Badger, a browser extension for blocking tracking scripts that was just recently updated to remove tracking links. Google contends the EFF is just spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Well, that's a term that we used back in the old days, and we call it FUD, 
when we were always saying that IBM was spreading FUD. We believe the safe use of data can improve user experiences, a Google spokesperson said. With daily life's growing reliance on digital technology, we want to ensure that user data is being used even more responsibly. Privacy-enhancing technologies like on-device storage and differential privacy are at the core of Privacy Sandbox, making it possible for users to get relevant ads without sharing their identity across websites. Those types of innovative privacy-preserving personalization approaches are critical to reimagining a private internet where businesses can thrive. Ignoring how Privacy Sandbox works is at worst fair mongering without cause and close-mindedness to innovation at best. Well, that's what Google says, and, and of course we know Google does not necessarily know what's best for you. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, what do you have for us? Well, you, you know, Humpty Dumpty, he had a great fall and, and you can too. I got in the works WG340 bladeless electric leaf muncher, uh, mulcher. Well, that's, Mul- it's both. <laughs> okay. I mean, we're, we're right here in fall. This is, this is very timely. Okay. Now, I love the idea of mountains of leaves, mountains, mountains of leaves getting compacted 11 to 1. You drop them in the top of this thing and it goes into a trash bag. You can stick in the weekly pickup 11 to 1. Let me go over this. You can ingest 53 gallons of leaves every minute and only fill a bit over five gallons. An off-the-shelf trash bag is 30 to 33 gallons, and that can fit more than five continuous minutes of that and hold what started out as 325 to 350 gallons of leaves, 11 times more. But that's continuous minutes. In real life, maybe you and your crew are feeding leaves using scoops or rakes or gloved hands. I figure half an hour or so of leaf munching, okay, mulching, before you'd swap in a new trash bag. Okay. One important note, and they did alert me, wet leaves can just gum it up. So okay. either only use this when leaves are dry or spread the wet leaves out to dry before you use it. Now, the thing is shaped like a funnel on a bucket on a stand. And inside, there's kind of a kissing okay. cousin of spinning weed whacker string. You dump leaves into the top and a smaller clump comes out and drops into your trash bag. It's that easy. No gasoline, no battery, just your outdoor extension cord. Okay. The Works WG430 13-amp electric leaf mulcher is about 175 bucks on Amazon. Hey, want to come over and use mine? I still have plenty of leaves left. <laughs> <laughs> I've got plenty of leaves here. Thank you. Uh, but, okay, so now mulching, though. That I mean, it's, so you could grind this all down and then just reuse this, like, in your garden and uh, stuff yeah, like that. So, yeah. 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 Because uh, I, I'll tell you, yeah, the leaf issue, oh, crazy, beautiful colors. I, I <laughs> Southern California didn't have the turning of the leaves, you know. Here, you know, the it, it's just beautiful. Just yeah, oh, in Texas, so autumn was about fifteen minutes one afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> if you watch in Southern California, you watch the cacti as they <laughs> still are green, just constant green. Yes. All, All right. right. Uh, what else I do you talk have for about us? The Baseus blade. Okay. It's an ultra sim, slim, ultra skinny, hundred watt laptop power bank. 
Okay. It's not much bigger than a DVD twin pack. Remember those? Yeah, yeah. But it is heavier. Okay. The Baseus, uh, I love pronouncing B-A-S-E-U-S, ultra slim blade laptop power bank packs a power punch of lithium polymer batteries, can deliver up to 100 watts of power mm -hmm. with a total capacity of 20 amp hours. One of its edges supports two USB-A charging ports plus two USB-C ports that can each handle both inbound and outbound charging. When charging, it mines its P's and Q's, meaning PD power delivery and quick charge QC3 and QC4. Okay, nice, yeah. It's about 100 bucks online. And finally, the eKyro, E-K-Y-R-O, Wi-Fi garage opener remote controller. It uses 2.4 gig uh, low band Wi-Fi to compatible drawer openers. Uh, it uh, It isn't necessarily directly compatible so there's an adapter available they'll throw in for free i think that uh, is like a miniature garage door opener a clicker and uh, mm -hmm. it okay. that instead of directly going to things like liftmaster and chamberlain uh there's a magnet and reed switch on a wire hardness that lets tells it if the door's open or closed uh two prong ac plug powers it better than some models that have just bare wires yeah yeah this product has not been safety certified by UL or ETL and does mm, not include okay. that five-second audible and visual warning that is on UL requirements. Also, its published temperature specs claim it can work from 67 Fahrenheit below zero to 155 above. Let's just say I'm dubious. What, what, what is the case made out of? Uh, the kryptonium. <laughs> <laughs> Unobtainium. Yes. Okay, go it, on. <laughs> it, it's hap. Its app handles the usual chores, letting you know whether the door is open or not, giving you control over that. It has some timeout features that kick in the door if, uh, if the features kick in if the door is staying open past some interval at night and automatically closes it. Don't get locked out. Careful. It also integrates with some of the home automation personal assistant devices. The eKyro Wi-Fi controller module for garage door openers, about, a, about 40 bucks on Amazon and no subscription fees. Okay. All right. So we've got about a minute and a half left here. Uh, do you have any uh, quick items that you uh, No, I'll take my time uh, next uh, week on some other items. But <laughs> okay. I do, <laughs> do want to mention that uh, all of this attention to the garage is going to lead to some new reviews in the months ahead. I wanted to do a couple of things. I wanted to put battery backup on USB charging. Okay. And I found a way to do that. And the word anchor may come in on that before we're done. Uh, yes. I wanted to be able to put a phone in the car in a way that keeps it charged without having to plug into it. But doesn't okay. doesn't give it a mount that it's going to fall out of it by hit a wall or something. You know, the, mm -hmm. why, add, why add injury to injury, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and I'm also looking at ways... Uh, my car's 2022 Subaru Forester, and it has Android Auto, but not wireless Android Auto. I'm looking at adapters to make that happen. Okay. All right. So nice. I can get into the car. It's automatically in Android Auto. Some of these apps uh, will go on the Android Auto screen. I'll be charged. It'll work. Nothing to plug in. Very cool. So a lot of uh, a lot of garage and, and car tech coming up uh, soon in the coming coming weeks and months. That is Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rock. I'll be back with more. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty.
Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, October the 5th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has their meeting on Friday, October the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Their website is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, October the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, October the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, October the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is limac.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, October the 26th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is bcug.com. Happy computing! Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.